Welcome, my friends and seekers, to the Gospels Inc. podcast, where ink meets inspiration and stories of faith come to life. I'm your host, David Green, and while I'm not a preacher, I'm here to guide you on a refreshing journey through the pages of hope and salvation. Each week, we delve into different chapters of the Bible, unpacking the wisdom, uncovering the truths, and exploring the life-changing message within. Together, we will navigate the rich mosaic of God's Word, allowing it to illuminate your past, enrich your spirits, and deepen our understanding of faith and life. Imagine navigating the complexities of life the Bible as your compass, painting each day with strokes of grace, love, and truth. Here at Gospel Inc., that's not just a dream, it's our shared journey. So why wait? Embark on this aligning adventure with us. Let your spirit be stirred and your heart be filled with the warmth of the ultimate truth. Stay tuned and stay blessed as we unfold vibrant hues of the gospel, only here in Gospel Inc. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of Gospel Income. My name is David Green, and I will be your host this afternoon. Uh, today, we are going to journey into the heart of the celestial, uh, diving deep into the seventh chapter of the book of Revelations. Now, picture this. A great multitude of angels singing, elders and living creatures bowing in worship. We're about to explore a chapter filled with awe, wonder, and profound messages of hope and salvation. From the ceiling of the 144,000 to the endless praise of a crowd, too vast to number, Revelation 7 provides a glimpse into the grandeur of what awaits the faithful. So whether you're a seasoned theologian, a curious soul, or someone seeking solace, join us as we unravel the mysteries and marvels of Revelation 7. Now, let's embark on this divine journey together. So first, we're going to start in verse 1. The scripture here says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Now this is a powerful image. Let's dissect it a little bit, right? So these four angels standing at the four corners of the world um, is an expression in ancient literature that indicates the entirety or the totality of the earth. This view is consistent with other biblical passages, such as Isaiah 11:12, which states, He will raise a banner for all the nations and gather all the exiles together of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judea from the four corners of the earth. The deployment of these four angels to the cardinal points of the compass uh, really underscores God's sovereign control over all creation. Uh, so holding back the four winds, right? What does that mean? In the Bible, winds often symbolize destructive forces or divine judgments. Jeremiah 49.36 says this, I will bring against Elam the four winds from the four corners of heaven. I will scatter them to the four winds, and there will not be a nation where Elam's exiles do not go. The act of holding back these winds denote a divinely ordained pause, possibly giving humanity a brief respite or allowing for other prophetic events to unfold. Then we talk about the prevention of harm to land, sea, and trees. This provides a comprehensive view of God's protective measures. Trees, land, and sea represent all levels of life on earth, from the depths of the oceans to every plant and creature on land. Uh, the specificity here right, ensures that uh, there's no ambiguity about the totality of God's halt and judgment. In essence, Revelations verse 1 and chapter 7 sets the stage for the following verses, highlighting God's omnipresence, right? And before the subsequent events unfold, there's a divinely ordained moment of calm, emphasizing that everything, even the most chaotic judgments, are under his command and of his purpose. Next, we're going to go into the angel of protection, right? Found in verses 2 through 3. Here's what the scripture says. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. He said this, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. It's powerful. The angel from the east with the gold, I'm sorry, with God's seal. The east in biblical symbology, right, often represents a place of divine intervention or origin. The rising sun, for example, symbolizes hope, renewal, and a new day. As found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with the healing in the rays. The angel descends from the east, carrying the seal of the living God, or the seal of Jesus, underscores the divine importance and authority of this mission. Now, we talk about the seal significance, right? Seals in the ancient world had various purposes, from making ownership to authenticating documents. In a spiritual sense, being sealed by God indicates his ownership, protection, and authentication of those who are his. This can be seen in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, which says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Thus, this sealing act is a profound assurance of God's promises to protect and preserve his chosen ones. So some people ask, what would that seal look like, right? Like, is God going to tattoo something on my forehead? Well, the book of Revelations does not provide a detailed physical description of the seal placed on the foreheads of the servants of God. It describes more in terms of its function than its appearance. The seal serves as a mark of protection and denotes God's ownership of those who are sealed. Uh, given the symbolic nature of the book of Revelations, the seal can be understood in spiritual terms rather than a literal mark. In the New Testament, um, especially in Paul's letters, believers are described as being sealed with the Holy Spirit, indicating God's ownership, protection, and guarantee of their inheritance. The spiritual seal is not visible to the human eye, but it is known to God and it serves a protection function during times of judgment. While the exact appearance of the seal in Revelation 7 isn't described, its importance uh, lies really in the protective powers and its indication of those who belong to God. Then the angel's uh, proclamation to the four angels, right? The urgency and authority in the angel's voice emphasizes the priority of the sealing process. But he says, before any harm comes to earth, God's people must be marked and protected. This aligns with God's nature, as seen throughout the scriptures, where he is constantly safeguarding his faithful ones amidst judgments and calamities. In essence, right, uh, the verses 2 through 3 in chapter 7 accentuates God's unwavering commitment to protect his servants. In the midst of unfolding judgments, God ensures that those who belong to him are distinctly marked and shielded from harm, showcasing his mercy, love, and faithfulness. Next, we'll move on to verse 4. Here's what it says. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, what? why 144? Right? The number 144,000 is representative. Right, it, it represents completeness in biblical numerology. Twelve, a significant biblical number, often associated with government and perfection, is squared, 12 by 12, and then multiplied by 1,000, indicating divinely perfect and full representation. So then we talk about the tribal representation. While the number is collectively 144,000, the breakdown reveals an equal number, 12,000 from each of the tri 12 tribes of Israel. This underscores God's impartiality and his unwavering commitment to all the tribes of Israel. It's sealed for protection.
an act of sealing the specific group suggests a divine mark of protection and a special purpose during the tribulation. Much like during the Passover in Egypt, right, when the Israelites' house were marked to be passed over by the angel of death. This seal serves to safeguard, uh, safeguard God's chosen uh, during the forthcoming trials, and they're going to be difficult. Then, you know, the debate around the surrounding identity. The identity of the 144,000 has been the subject of really, you know, long discussions among theologians and biblical scholars. Some believe uh, this refers to a little group of Jews in the end times, while others interpret it as, as, as symbolically, right, denoting the totality of God's people being protected during tribulation. In essence, right, uh, Revelations verse 4 from chapter 7 highlights God's fidelity and promise to shelter his chosen the act of sealing the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel is a testament to God's consistent love and protection for his people, even amidst the world's final uh, tumultuous events. Next, we're going to jump down to verses 5 through 8. This is a long one, so stick with me here. From the tribe of Judea, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. I'm going to go through all these tribes in more detail later, but know that there are many tribes with the 12,000 sealed, right? So uh, what's the importance of this? As they tread down the quotation mark on scripture where God is talking about how many are sealed between each tribe. Well, it says equal representation. The meticulous breakdown of each tribe receiving precisely 12,000 seals underscores God's impartiality. It is a powerful reminder that no tribe is favored above another in God's sight, reflecting his just and equitable nature. As Acts chapter 10 verse 34 says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Then we have the significance of the listing tribes, right? The tribes listed here slightly differ from the traditional listings of the 12 tribes of Israel. Notably, the tribes of Dan and Ephraim are absent, while Mansia and Joseph appear. This variation has sparked numerous discussions. Some scholars believe this change reflects spiritual truths, and Dan and Ephraim had historically associated with idolatry. Then it's about the comprehensive protection, right? That's what we're moving into next. The act of sealing members from each tribe reinforces the notion that God's protection is all-encompassing. And the, the individuals mentioned of every tribe signifies that none are overlooked or forgotten by God. As found in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 through 16, it says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? I have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I want to pause here, right? So let's talk a little bit about the tribes, right? The tribes that are under God's protection. First, we have Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob and Leah. Genesis uh, chapter 35, verse 22 mentions, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Goliath, his father's concubine. Due to this grave transgression, he lost his birthright. Despite his early prominence, the tribe of Reuben later chose to settle on the east side of the Jordan River after the conquest of Canaan. This region corresponds to the part of modern-day Jordan. Over time, they merged with other uh, other tribe, pop, tribal populations, losing their distinct tribal identity. Next is Simon. Simon, stemming from the second son of Jacob and Leah, is infamously remembered for his act alongside his brother, uh, Levi, in avenging their sister, Dina. Genesis chapter 34, 25 through 26, recounts this. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while they felt secure and killed all the males. 
their original territory was within Judea's expansive domain, but as time passed, they were absorbed into the tribe of Judea. Their historical lands are now in the southern part of Israel. Next, we have Levi. Levi was the third son of Jacob and Leah. Due to their loyalty uh, during the incident of the golden calf, the Levites were designated as priests. Exodus chapter 32, verse 26 states this. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. As priests and the Levites were scattered throughout Israel, serving their religious roles and maintaining the temple. They did not have a designated land inheritance, but were granted cities throughout Israel. Next, we have Judea. Judea's significance in biblical history is monumental. He was the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. Genesis 49.10 prophesizes this, The scepter shall not depart from Judea, nor the roller's staff from between his feet. The lineage gave rise to King David and eventually Jesus Christ. The tribe of Judea settled in the central and southern parts of Canaan, with their territory encompassing uh, present-day Jerusalem solidifying its place in Israel. Next, we have Dan. Dan, the son of Jacob, and Beliah, Rachel's maid, is noted for its migration in the book of Judges. Judges 18.1 mentions this. In those days, there were no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. Initially located in the southwest, they later migrated northward, away from the Philistines' pressure, occupying areas close to modern-day Lebanon. Next, we have Nephetali. Originating from Aphetality, uh, another son of Jacob and Blau. The tribe settled in lands around the Sea of Galilee. In Genesis 49.21, Jacob blesses Nephetali by saying, Nephetali is a doe, let loose the bears of beautiful fawns. Their territory aligns with the regions near the Sea of Galilee in today's Israel. Ged. The tribe of Gad, descendants of Jacob and Zephal, Leah's maid, is known for a warrior spirit. Deuteronomy 33, uh, verses 20 through 21, mentions Moses' blessing. Blessed be who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arms and scalp. Choosing to dwell east of the Jordan River, they settle in what is now uh, parts of modern-day Jordan. Asher. Asher is another offspring of Jacob. Had a region known for its abundance. Genesis 49.20 says this, From Asher his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. They settled in the northern parts of Canaan, which corresponds to the coastal areas of today of Lebanon and northwest Israel. Next is Asher, the ninth son of Jacob, and the fifth of Leah. Had territory that lay in the fertile Jezreel Valley and part of the Jordan Valley, making it uh, very, very rich. In Genesis 49, verses 14 through 15, Jacob speaks of Asher's love for the land and peace. Asher is as strong as a donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed, he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Their lands roughly correspond to parts of modern-day Israel, and particularly the, the northern regions. Next, we have Zebulun was Leah's sixth son with Jacob. Genesis 49.13 notes this, Zebulun shall dwell by the heaven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. This implies Zulbun's coastal territories, even though the tribe was not directly by the sea. Their territory was between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, in today's northern Israel. And then next is Mensa. Alongside Ephraim was one of Joseph's two sons. Jacob adopted them, granting them equal status among his own sons. The tribe of Mansa occupied two significant territories, one on the east side of the Jordan River and one on the west of Canaan. The eastern half is the modern-day Jordan, the western half and the northern parts of Israel. 
Notably in Joshua 17, verses 17 through 18, Joshua encourages Ephraim and Messiah with the words, You are numerous people and have great power. You will not just one allotment, but the Fortis Hills countries will be yours. While Joseph um, is another tribe that is mentioned, is often represented by his two sons, Ephraim and Messiah. In the vision of lands, he uh, here's he is mentioned distinctly, right? Joseph's story from the betrayal by his brothers to his rise in Egypt is one of the most detailed narratives in Genesis. A significant blessing is bestowed upon Joseph in Genesis 49, 23 to 26, where he's described as a fruitful tree by a well whose branches climb over walls. And then finally, Benjamin. With Rachel's second son and Jacob's last, located between Ephraim and Judea, the tribe occupied a small but crucial territory around Jerusalem in the heart of today's Israel. Benjamin has a fierce warrior reputation. In Genesis 49:27, Jacob says this, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. So now, as I mentioned earlier, right, two traditional names are conspicuously absent. And here is maybe why they were not included. The first name is Dan. Dan was the fifth son of Jacob, born to Bilal, Rachel's maid. Rachel, unable to have children at the time, gave Bilal to Jacob so that she might have a child through her. After Dan's birth, Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan, which means he judged. The territory, right? Originally, the tribe of Dan was located in a portion of land in northern parts of Canaan. However, due to the pressure from the Philistines, they migrated northward and captured the city of Laish, renaming it Dan. The city of Dan became the north northernmost point in the traditional Israelite territory, leading to the saying, from Dan to Beersheba. Now, the tribe of Dan, known for introducing, introducing idol worship into Israel, a horrible thing. In Judges 18, the Danites set up themselves to the idol Micah, had made, and Jonathan, a Levite, became their priest, leading to idolatry in the territory. Now, the precise reason why the tribe of Dan is omitted in Revelation 7 is a topic of debate among scholars. The tribe's association with idolatry, especially in the setting up of a graven image in the newly claimed territory, might be one of the reasons for their omission. The shift from worshiping the true God to idols might be seen as betrayal and could uh, be why they were left out of the listed tribes, receiving God's protection in the end of times. Not a good thing. You don't want to get out of God's protection. Uh, next, we're going to talk about Ephraim. From a biblical origin standpoint, Ephraim was the second son of Joseph, born in him in Egypt. His name means fruitful, reflecting Joseph's words, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The tribe of Ephraim occupied a central position in Canaan, just to the south of Mansa, north of Benjamin, roughly corresponding to the central region of modern-day Israel. The tribe of Ephraim holds a notable place in Israelite history. Joshua, who led the Israelites into Canaan, was from his tribe. Additionally, the city of Shiloh in Ephraim's territory was the first religious capital of the Israelites and a location of the Ark of the Covenant for the building of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Now, Ephraim, like Dan, had associations with adultery. The tribe is reprimanded several times in the Old Testament for its adulterous practices. For example, in Hosea 4.17, it stated this, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. The mission of Ephraim in Revelation 7 could be a consequence of their departure from pure worship of God. However, it's worth noting that while the name Ephraim is absent, the name Joseph appears, which could be seen as representing both Ephraim and Mensah collectively. 
So overall, right, in essence, the verse 8 offers a profound glimpse into God's equitable and encompassing care. By sealing a specific number from each tribe, God displays his unwavering commitment to safeguard every portion of his chosen people, underscoring his meticulous attention to detail and his deep and unfaltering love for Israel. We're going to jump down to verse 9, the great multitude. Here's what it says. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, this is called this is boundless diversity, right? The appearance of the great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language is a powerful testament to the university, right? The universality of God's salvation. This sweeping inclusivity it reflects God's intention that the gospel reaches every corner of the earth, inviting all to be part of his eternal kingdom. As Matthew twenty-eight nineteen states, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In contrast to the 144,000, right? While the earlier verses focused on a specific number from the tribes of Israel, this passage unveils an immeasurable crowd. The juxtaposed, right, magnifies the ideal that God's saving grace, while starting with Israel, extends far beyond its borders to encompass all of humanity. And then the position of the multitude. Their stance before the throne and before the Lamb indicate their redeemed status. Being the presence of God in the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, signifies their acceptance, honor, and eternal communion. This recalls Jesus' promise in John 10:16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep's pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. In essence, right? Verse 9 showcases the breathtaking scope of God's redemptive plan. The vast uncountable multitude of stands as a testament to the expansive reach of God's love and salvation, emphasizing his mercies are available to everyone, transcending any earthly uh, distinctions or, or boundaries. Next, we're going to talk about the unified worship in verse 10. Here's what it says. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a unified proclamation. A collective cry in a loud voice by the innumerable multitude demonstrates the power of unified worship. Such a harmonious and amplified declaration reveals a deep-seated acknowledgement and gratitude for the salvation they have received. Then, recognizing the dual role in salvation, their praise is directed towards both God, who sits on the throne, and the Lamb, representing Jesus Christ. This dual acknowledgement signifies a profound understanding of the roles uh, both entities play in the redemption narrative. While God is a sovereign creator and ruler, it is through the sacrificial, sacrificial act of the Lamb that salvation becomes accessible. As John 1.29 states, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Then salvation's soul proclamation, right? The proclamation that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Emphasizes the exclusive divine source of redemption. It refutes any notion that salvation could be attained through any other means or sources. Aligning with Acts 4.12, which states this, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Revelations in verse 10, right? It really encapsulates the essence of the Christian faith. The complete reliance on and gratitude towards God and Jesus Christ uh, for the gift of salvation. This unified outpouring of worship from a diverse multitude underscores the universal relevance and the acceptance of this redemptive message.
Next, we're going to go down to uh, verses 11 through 12. It states this. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the, around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is the grand assembly of worshipers. The scene presents a spectacular gathering of heavenly beings, angels, elders, and the four living creatures, all positioned around God's throne. Their collective stance speaks to volumes about the magnitude and the centrality of God's glory. And we talk about the profound reverence and humility. The act of falling down on their faces is a significant gesture of reverence, submission, and awe. Such a posture is commonly associated with deep worship and acknowledgement of divine majesty, suggesting an environment of utmost respect and devotion in heaven. Then we have the sevenfold, right? The sevenfold praise. The structural proclamation of praise covers seven distinct attributes. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength. In biblical numerology, the number seven often symbolizes completeness or perfection. By attributing these seven qualities to God, the heavenly beings recognize his all-encompassing nature and the totality of his attributes. Next, we talk about the unending adoration. The phrase forever and ever emphasizes the eternal nature of God's dominion, the unending worship he receives. It is a testament to God's infinite worthiness and everlasting devotion he commands. In essence, right? Verse 12 provides a glimpse into the celestial realm where the grandeur of God's presence invokes unending adoration and praise. This heavenly acknowledgement serves as a reminder of God's unparalleled majesty and the unified worship that transcends earthly boundaries. Then we talk about verses 13 to 14. Inquiry about the multitude. Here it states, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, what's with the elders' inquiry, right? The questioning by one of the elders serves multiple purposes. Firstly, it heightens the anticipation and curiosity of the reader, drawing attention to the multitude's significance. Secondly, it provides an opportunity for a clearer understanding of the identity and the background of the vast group. Now, John has a humble response by replying, sir, you know. John demonstrates humility and indifference, right? He acknowledges elders' wisdom and knowledge, effectively setting the stage for the forthcoming revelation. Then we have the emergence of the Great Tribulation. The elders' response offers a profound insight into the experience of the multitude. They have emerged from the Great Tribulation, a period of unparalleled suffering and persecution detailed in the book of Revelations. Their presence in heaven signifies their endurance and steadfast faith amidst immense challenges. Then their robes are washed in rain. The imagery of robes being made white in the blood of the Lamb is a powerful symbol of purification and redemption. In the biblical context, white garments often symbolize righteousness and purity. Here it indicates that the multitude's sins have been cleansed by the sacrificial blood of Jesus, the Lamb. This aligns with scriptural references such as Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18. Through your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And First John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from all sin. Revelations uh, verses 13 through 14 really brings to light the journey and triumph of the multitude. And preserved through extreme adversity, they now stand purified and victorious, attributing their salvation to the redemptive power of the Lamb's sacrifice. Their presence serves as a beacon of hope, a testament to God's mercy, and the transformative power of faith.
Then we're going to go down to eternal promises, found in verses 15 through 17. It says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Now, we're going to talk about the presence before the throne. Being before the throne of God signifies a position of honor and closeness to the divine. It's a culmination of believers' journey, emphasizing their direct communion with the Almighty. Their continuous service day and night in his temple is a manifestation of their devotion and dedication free from earthly constraints. Next, we're going to talk about divine shelter and protection. God promises to shelter them with his presence. It speaks volumes about his protective nature. Use of the word shelter resonates with the ideal of refuge and safety, implying that the multitude is now shielded from any harm or adversaries uh, they faced on earth. Freedom from hunger, thirst, and suffering. Promise no, no more hunger or thirst. Protection from the sun's oppressive heat are symbolic of the end of the physical and spiritual sufferings. These blessings are reminiscent of the Israelites' journey through the desert, where God provided them with manna and water. Here in the heavenly context, it denotes a state of eternal satisfaction and well-being. Then guidance by the Lamb, right? The imagery of the Lamb as a shepherd is deeply rooted in biblical tradition. Just as shepherds guide their flocks to nourishing pastures, the Lamb, or Jesus, leads the redeemed to springs of living water, a symbol of eternal life and spiritual rejuvenation. Jesus himself mentioned this in John 4.14, 4, Whatever drinks the water I give them will never thirst indeed. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Then the wiping away of every tear. One of the most poignant promises, the act of God wiping away every tear, emphasizes his compassion and intimate care for his people. It assures the end of sorrow, pain, and any remnants of past suffering. In essence, Revelation uh, chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, it really paints a picture of eternal blessing that awaits the faithful in the presence of God. It's a tapestry of promises, each thread weaving a story of hope, redemption, and divine love. It reminds believers of their rewards for their perseverance and for their faith in God. So, dear listeners, as we draw the curtains on our deep dive in Revelation 7, we're reminded of the vast tapestry of God's love, protection, and eternal promises he holds for his people. The visions of John, through intricate and awe-inspiring, always point us back to the core of truth salvation and hope in the midst of life's tribulations. As you go about your week, may you find comfort in the promises of God's shelter, his guiding hand leading to springs of living water, and the eternal embrace that awaits all who believe. Thank you for joining us on Gospel Inc. Until next time, keep seeking, keep believing, and always remember, his promises endure forever. So today, right, as we delve deeply into the chapter of the Bible, let our hearts be turned to the resounding echoes of divine truth and hope that transcends the ages and whispers fervently to our spirits even today. In the swirling torments of time marked by uncertainty and confusion and the shadows of persecution, let us anchor ourselves in the unshakable reality of Christ's solidarity. He reigns supreme, his authority unyielding, and his love unfailing. Remember, he is the triumphant king who holds the keys to life and death, whose resurrection power pulses in our veins of creation, promising us victory over the grave and an 
gift of eternal life. As we tread these pages, right, the unfold divisions granted to John on the rugged terrains of the island of Patmos, let us not forget the context of these revelations. Patmos, a place of isolation and exile, mirrors the depths and the despair and abandonment. Yet it is here, amid the barren landscape, that the radiant light of God's presence pierces the veil of darkness, illuminating the path of hope, assurance, and eternal promises. He said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. In the face of towering empires and oppressive rulers, John the Apostle of Love received the unyielding words of Christ, a message of flame with resolute courage and unyielding victory. These words breathed life and resilience into the fledging Christian community, battered by the attempts and persecutions of fear. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. Let this blessing permeate over your very beings, infusing you with strength and fortitude as we navigate the pathways of our lives. May the profound words and visions of revelations fill our spirits of unwavering assurance of Christ's ultimate victory and eternal reign. In the mosaic of divine revelations, may we glimpse the celestial tapestry of God's unending love and faithfulness. Now as we close this reflection, let us carry forth the flame of hope ignited by the pleasant vision of John, allowing its light to guide our steps, dispel our fears, and deepen our wavering allegiance to our risen Lord. I praise that our hearts may be ever strengthened, our spirits ever emboldened, and our lives ever anchored in the boundless ocean of God's eternal promises. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I say amen. I want to close today with a simple prayer. Please close your eyes and bow your head with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about you. The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. True salvation experience comes from truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows commitment to the followings and teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to thank you for sharing your time with me today. If you found value in this content, I invite you to click the subscribe button. Over the next few weeks, our journey will further unfold into the chapters of Revelation. Your insights are important to me. If there's anything you disagree with or would like to share feedback on, please don't hesitate to leave a comment. In future episodes, I plan to review comments on the podcast because engaging discussion often leads to deeper understanding. And perhaps God has granted you insights into his divine promises that could enlighten us all. Wishing you a blessed and joyful week.